text for this morning's sermon is John 1, the verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how do you know if someone is trustworthy? It's an important question, especially in the world in which we live. There's all sorts of scam artists around People who email you or phone you or text you with some supposedly great deal to defraud you or some sob story to get money out of you. Canadians get bilked out of millions of dollars each year through this kind of fraud. We need to learn to be careful about who we trust because not everyone is trustworthy. The same applies in the realm of ideas. Many people have an agenda that they want to promote and do what they can to sign you up to their cause. Inherently, there is nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, is that not everyone is honest about the information that they present. Many have the testimony, many have the tendency to promote material that bolsters their cause and to ignore arguments that go against what they are promoting. Just think about the abortion industry, about those who argue against the production of oil and gas, or those who are promoting medical aid in dying. Living in the information age, our problem is not that we lack knowledge about a certain topic. Instead, our problem is, is that there's so much information available that we don't know how to sort through it to separate what's good from bad. So how do we know what sources to trust? It's an important question for matters of everyday life. It's an essential question when it comes to matters of faith. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 warns us, now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Some will buy into the propaganda and lies of Satan and his earthly minions, and it'll cost them their share in God's eternal kingdom. Because of this, John gives us this instruction in 1 John 4, verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Bible teaches us that for us to believe something to be true, it must be verified by two or three witnesses. And so in the Bible, the good news of the gospel itself is also brought by the testimony of trustworthy people. Jesus did not just come proclaiming himself to be the Messiah sent from God. The Lord arranged many other witnesses to verify this truth. These witnesses include both people who lived earlier and spoke prophetically about the coming Messiah. (coughs) They also include people living in Jesus' day, whom God sent to testify about the person and work of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. When challenged by the Jewish leaders, John testifies about who he is and who Jesus is. We'll see how John humbles himself and how John exalts Jesus. Our text begins with the Jewish leaders sending a delegation from Jerusalem to John, asking him, Who are you? Why was it that the Jewish leaders had sent a delegation to investigate John? In part, it was because of the message he preached. John preached boldly, calling out the people's sins, calling them to repentance. John required everyone who was truly repentant to be baptized, symbolizing the washing away of their sins. This was unheard of. It was a puzzling message to the Jews. It's not that they were unfamiliar with baptism. When Gentiles wanted to become Jews, they needed to undergo circumcision, to be baptized, and to offer sacrifices at the temple. A baptism was connected to the idea of being unclean. It showed that the Gentiles were dirty and needed to be washed for them to be part of God's holy people. But what was astounding to the Jews was that John required them to be baptized. The Jews considered themselves to be children of Abraham, God's holy and beloved people. They didn't see any need to be washed of their sins because they considered themselves to be good people. They were not unclean like those Gentiles. Why should they be baptized? For John to require them to humble themselves and confess their sins was a strange teaching. The fact that he required them to be baptized, symbolizing a washing away of their sins, 
was radical. So these leaders came to John and asked him, Who are you? It was a loaded question. Behind it lays the question, Who gave you the authority to preach and baptize? John responded by saying, I am not the Christ. He stated this emphatically. John made it clear he was not the one anointed of God, whom the Jews expected was coming to save them from the Romans. The priests and Levites were not satisfied with that answer. The Pharisees had sent them to investigate John. So they asked more questions about who John was. They asked, Are you Elijah? The Lord had prophesied through Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. To this question, John responded, I am not. It's puzzling to us that John denies that he was Elijah. Because the angel who announced his birth spoke of him ministering in the spirit and power of Elijah. Later in the Gospels, Jesus identifies John as Elijah who is to come. So why does John deny being Elijah? It is because the Jews expected some kind of resurrection of Elijah. They expected that the Old Testament prophet would himself reappear on earth to serve as a herald of the coming Messiah. John wants to dispel those wrong notions. He was not the Elijah whom God took into heaven with chariots and horsemen of fire. It's true that he came in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy to serve as the forerunner of the Christ. But John wanted to be sure that Jewish leaders did not have any misconceptions about him. Next, the priests and Levites asked, Are you the prophet? This question finds its origin in Deuteronomy 18. There Moses told God's people, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Elijah makes it clear that he's not the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18. It is Jesus himself whom God sent to proclaim the way of redemption to his people. John made it absolutely clear. He was not the long-awaited prophet. John the Baptist had a clear understanding of who he was. He knew his Bible and he knew himself. He was not the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Neither was he some kind of manifestation of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Nor was he the prophet that Moses said was coming. Part of John's testimony was being clear about these things. John did not want to put himself in competition with Jesus. His role as herald was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, not to get in the way by drawing any kind of attention to himself. Something important we can learn from this, beloved, is we witness about Jesus in our lives. It may be possible that others are drawn to us because of our godliness or gentleness or kindness, 
or because of our comfort or joy or hope. Yet we should never allow others to focus on us. We're just Christ's image bearers. The focus needs to be on him. People admire us for the good things we do or the success that we enjoy. They're missing the point. We are not the answer to this world's problems. Christ is. We need to make it clear that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can save. We need to put the attention on him. So far, John's answers have not satisfied the Jewish leaders. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John responded, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John bases his right to testify on the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah spoke about the herald who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. At John's birth, his father Zechariah stated that John would be called the prophet of the Most High. He said, you, sh- you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And thus John could rightly quote from Isaiah saying, he came in fulfillment of this prophecy. It's significant that John identifies himself as a voice. In the first part of John's gospel, Jesus has been identified as the word. A voice is the vehicle by which the word is made known. Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He was with God from the beginning. All things were made through him. He's called the word because it's through him that the way of salvation has been revealed to us. John is the first voice to make clear who Jesus Christ is. He's the one who prepared the way for the coming Messiah. John's quotation from Isaiah 40 also serves a secondary purpose. It was a call for these Jewish leaders to also repent of their sins. And the message of the voice in the wilderness was, make straight the way of the Lord. Just like the people, also the Jewish leaders needed to turn to the Lord, repenting of their sins, humbling themselves before God. They too were unclean and needed to be washed with the water of baptism for the repentance of their sins. The priests and Levites were not yet ready to accept this call to repent and be baptized. They knew the Pharisees would not be satisfied with the answers they had so far. So they asked John, Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Here we get to the heart of the issue facing the Jewish leaders. What gave John the right to baptize Jews? On whose authority was he doing this? John did not directly answer their question. He had already provided a biblical witness about who he was. John gave no further personal defense of his authority to preach 
and baptize. Instead, he once again focused the attention on the coming Messiah. John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. What John is saying is that if the Jewish leaders only understood who the Messiah was, they would understand his ministry. To point out the surpassing greatness of the Messiah, John speaks about how he was not worthy to untie his sandal. In the ancient Near East, walking was the main form of transport. The roads were hot and dusty. Feet were dirty and smelly. Rabbinic writings make it clear that the disciples were required to perform all kinds of menial service for their, for their rabbis. But they were not required to untie their sandals. That was too gross of a job for even a lowly disciple to perform. Yet John says there was someone among them whose sandal he was not worthy to untie. This person was so great, so majestic, so glorious, John did not feel worthy of performing even the lowliest of tasks for him. Earlier in John 1, we see how John the Baptist had already acknowledged that Jesus was the true light, which gives light to everyone. John stated, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Because of Christ's surpassing greatness, John humbles himself before him. Again, beloved, there's an important lesson for us in this. Often the world looks at us as Christians and expects us to have our lives together. To the world, being a Christian is often synonymous with being a good person. We like to present ourselves in a positive way. On Sundays, we dress neatly, we paste a smile on our faces, and we pretend that all is well, even if it's not. At Bible study, it's easy to talk about how life should be, even when that may not be the reality of what lives deep inside. Our witness to the world, and even to our brothers and sisters, can be really intimidating. You can send the message that to join the church, you need to be a superhuman. But beloved, that's a lie. We're not really all that different from the average Joe in society around us. There's times when we get scared, when anxiety grabs a hold of us, when we struggle with depression. Some of us struggle with addictions to pornography or alcohol. Some of us have anger issues. We're not great stewards of our time or our money. We deal with struggles in our marriages 
We make all kinds of mistakes in how we parent our kids. We all tend to be self-centered. Why can't we be humble about these things? Why do we feel the need to put on a face, to present an image? Fundamentally, the only difference between us and the people of the world is that we have Christ as our Savior, and they don't. The fact that Christ lives in us is what distinguishes us from those in society around us. We are often weak and struggling sinners. Learning to admit that to each other would allow us to be a much greater support and encouragement for each other. Being humble about our weaknesses and shortcomings would help unbelieving neighbors and friends to see our common need for Christ as our Savior. We've considered how John humbled himself. In our second point, we'll see how John exalts Christ. Our text continues by telling us what happened the day after John was asked questions about who he was and what gave him the right to preach and teach as he did. John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John's testimony cuts to the heart of who the promised Messiah is. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? The Israelites were familiar with the image of a sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of the people's sins. Daily, at the temple in Jerusalem, the priests offered morning and evening sacrifices to make atonement for sin. They were offered as a perpetual reminder of the people's need for forgiveness. For the Israelites, one of the most prominent images of a lamb related to their Passover celebrations. Each year they were commanded to celebrate this feast to remember how the Lord had sent an angel of death to slay the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Only those who sacrificed a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their homes escaped God's judgment. This feast was a reminder of how God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt by bringing judgment and death on Egypt. The fact that Jesus is called the Lamb of God also relates to the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah being a suffering servant. He wrote, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah being like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and about how he was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Thus, the Old Testament scriptures make it clear that Jesus would be a different kind of Messiah 
than the Jews expected. They expected a mighty king to arise to lead a revolt against the Romans, to set him free from the subjugation of foreign rulers. But that's not what God's people really needed. Their root problem was not that foreign kings ruled over them. Their problem was that they were in the grip of sin and Satan. They needed to be redeemed from their sins and restored to fellowship with God again. John revealed the good news of the gospel. As a forerunner of the Christ, John makes it clear that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus take away our sin? By taking it onto himself, by bearing our punishment on the cross. Peter writes about this at the end of 1 Peter 2. Reflecting on Isaiah 53, Peter says the following about Jesus Christ. He writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ paid the price we could never pay, taking God's wrath on himself, that we might be reconciled to him. It's striking, beloved, to note whose sins Christ came to bear. John said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not a statement that all people in the world will be saved. It's only those who believe in Jesus, who confess their sins and receive him as Savior and Lord, who are forgiven. Jesus made this clear when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what was John saying when he speaks about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here John is combating this notion that salvation is only for those inside our group. The Jews had a terrible attitude towards outsiders. They saw themselves as the chosen people of God, as being worthy of salvation and blessing. And they saw all those outside the 12 tribes of Israel as Gentiles. They considered them unclean, deserving of God's judgment and wrath. But right from the beginning of his gospel, John makes clear that Jesus came to save sinners, irrespective of who they were, or where they came from, or how they lived. Beloved, God doesn't just care about you and your loved ones and your church family. God's goal is to redeem from fallen humanity a people for himself, from all tribes and peoples and nations. Israel had failed in its calling to be a light to the nations. We have Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of our triune God, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. 
Revelation 5, heaven sings its praises to the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. It sings, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they shall reign on the earth. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then he is the Savior that every sinner needs. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. Beloved by nature, we were slaves to sin and Satan. We were held captive in the cruel bondage of sin and guilt. We still experience the ravages of sin in our hearts and our lives. We're easily tempted by the pleasures this world has to offer. We find it hard to say no to the sinful desires of the flesh. When we sin, we experience shame and guilt. When we repeat the same sins in our lives again and again, we're increasingly alienated from God. We begin to doubt God's love for us. and The distance between Him and us grows. By ourselves, we make a huge mess of our lives. Someone must intervene to save us from ourselves. That's what Jesus came to do. He came into this world to intervene in our lives. There are two parts to Christ's intervention in our lives. We've seen how he came as a lamb of God to take away our sins. Yet there's more to Jesus' work than just saving us from our sins. He also came to baptize us with the Spirit to help us live for God. Our text continues with John telling us about what happened at Christ's baptism. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When John says he didn't know Jesus, he doesn't mean this on a personal level. John and Jesus' mothers were cousins. As relatives, they knew each other. What our text makes clear is that John had a revelation from God about how he was to identify the coming Messiah. The person on whom John saw the Spirit descend and remain was the one who would baptize with the Spirit. This is the one who was the promised Messiah. He was God's eternal Son. When the Bible speaks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's referring to what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus poured out the Spirit on the church. The Holy Spirit came to make His home in the hearts of all God's people. Through the Spirit, God not only works faith in our hearts that Jesus is the Messiah sent to redeem us from our sins. The Spirit also helps us in our walk with God. He helps us fight against the temptations of Satan and the sinful desires of the flesh. He guides and directs our lives that more and more we live them as 
image bearers of Christ. The Spirit reminds us of God's promise that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us and so encourages us to stand firm in our faith. Beloved, we live in a world filled with information. There are all kinds of philosophies about what's important in life. Do you know the most fundamental question that each person living on planet Earth needs to answer? It is, how do I escape from the wrath of God? Everyone living on this earth is a sinful human being. Oh, it's true that many people like to think of themselves as being good people. But that's rubbish. By nature, we're all vile sinners. Our sinful attitudes, thoughts, words, and deeds make it clear. We deserve to come under the wrath of God. The Bible makes it clear that one day soon, Jesus Christ will return on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Every person who has ever lived will have to give account of his life before the judge. None of us is righteous in ourselves. We all need to be saved from our sins. John came teaching us about how to be saved from the wrath of God. He tells us about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells us about how Jesus would baptize with his spirit, granting power to be delivered from the mastery of sin and Satan. Do you believe in this promised Messiah? Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? It is only those who have believed in his name that he gave the right to be children of God. Jesus is the answer for our sin, our need, our misery. Jesus alone is the solution to humanity's problems. We have a task to serve as his witnesses, both to those within and outside the church. And in doing so, beloved, like John, we need to humble ourselves and to exalt Christ. He alone is worthy of all praise and adoration. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together. Psalm 145, stanzas 2 and 3.